A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever wondered what attracts people to stories about true crime? I get asked about this a lot. I think there are a few reasons. If you've listened to my podcast before, you're likely following along and trying to solve the mystery as it unfolds. For others, true crime can help them feel empowered. The stories I share are about healing and survival and can inspire perseverance in even the worst circumstances. I also think it's because these stories are relatable. Most of the people in the cases I cover are just going about their normal lives, never thinking something horrible could happen to them or a loved one. No one ever expects they could fall victim to a horrific crime. And when it does happen, few are prepared for the devastating impact. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, the case of a young mother who was doing everything she could to build a happy future for her and her little boy, when suddenly, all of those plans were tragically interrupted. It seriously messed me up. I think about her every day. Oh, a million different theories, none of them good. Her redemption was, was interrupted. This is the story of Jessica Newman and her stolen second chance. Jessica Newman was basically the girl next door. She loved simple pleasures like baking, gaming, and singing karaoke. She just likes to be in the center of attention. And uh, yeah, she, she used to do karaoke with her roommate. That's Jessica's mom, Rhonda Stewart. In 2015, the bright-eyed 24-year-old was focused on working, supporting her young son, and had a newfound interest in her fitness. Well, at that point, she was in the gym three, four times a week. She was doing weightlifting, bodybuilding. Jessica went through some rocky relationships in the past, but life seemed to be getting back on track. Everything was going well until one night that March when she vanished. She had a big dog at home that needs to be fed and taken out and she didn't come home that night and she didn't come home the next day and then the Friday um, her roommate went down to her work and she had missed work as well. It just wasn't like Jessica to take off. Her family couldn't help but think the worst. I thought she might be alive somewhere like locked up somewhere um, by herself and that we needed to get to her before she ran out of water or food. 
Could the young mother have fallen victim to foul play? Before we can answer that, I need to take you back. Jessica was originally from BC. First, she lived in Quinell, then Prince George and Nanaimo. She was about five years old when her mom was quite literally shaken into making a move east to Calgary. They had an earthquake that I felt. (laughs) And we moved here very quickly after that. (laughs) According to her mother, Jessica was always strong-willed, feisty. She made it clear what she liked and what she didn't. When you needed to uh, comb her hair when she was little, she had long blonde hair, you had to basically hold her down when it was wet and then French braid it really quick and it was good for like four days because she hated having her hair combed that bad. (laughs) At 16, Jessica became a mom. Rhonda said at that time, Jessica was too young and far from settled, so the family helped her raise her two boys. Now in her 20s, she was working odd jobs, making plans to go back to school, and dreamed of finding love. That's when Kevin Rublitz walked into her life. She was super infatuated with him. Um, She really, really liked him. She wanted to have a family so bad. Um, She was just very, very excited and thought he was, he was the one very quickly. And yeah, she couldn't wait to bring him home so we could meet him. The relationship progressed quickly, even though Jessica's mom had some concerns. He seemed to bounce from job to job. He was a really good talker. Like, when you talk to him, he did come across as um, trustworthy. He did come across as friendly. Like, he was likable when you talked to him. I just didn't like the way he talked to her. They were living together pretty much immediately. And then came news the couple was expecting. And along with the news, some proof of Rhonda's reservations. She called me excited um, at first, and then he had actually cheated on her during the pregnancy, so she was very distraught um, and didn't know what to do. Jessica wanted to make it work and decided to stay in the relationship. On August 1st, 2012, they had a baby boy. For a while, things appeared to be going well, until they weren't. Rhonda said Kevin was controlling, and he didn't like it when Jessica called her mother. How frustrating was that for you? Very. I just, yeah. And you just couldn't convince her that there's better fish out in the sea, and this isn't the only one. She did get to the point where she was willing to leave. Um, So we tried to save some of her tips because he would take her money when she came home from work. So we were stealing some of her tips and hiding them in the truck. 
So if she had $120 worth of chips that night, um, she would take 60 of it and hide it in the truck and then just tell him that she only made 60. I thought it was a great idea, um, but he eventually found it and then of course was mad that she was saving money. The couple finally broke up and Kevin took her son. She phoned me from the courthouse screaming. I couldn't even understand her that she had lost him. And of course, I'm in Quinell. I can't do anything. So I was trying to get her to first calm down so I could understand exactly what was happening. Kevin made allegations that Jessica was a drunk, a full alcoholic. She had to go through counseling appointments to prove that she wasn't an alcoholic. She wasn't, but she still had to go to these counselors and get a little piece of paper that said she wasn't and then take that paper back to the court before she could have her visitation back. Jessica was desperate to have her son back, and things were getting complicated. She needed a permanent home, so the courts would see she had a stable environment to allow for visits with her son. One of her friends, Michael Hahn, stepped in to help. Her ex kicked her out, right, after they had an argument. They, they, just, they just recently got engaged. Apparently, um, uh, his sister and mom said something about what she was doing or not doing, whatever it was. I can't remember exactly what it was. And um, he believed them wouldn't let her tell her side of the story. So she took off the engagement ring and he says, when you're ready to treat me like your wife, you can give it back to me. Well, he pretty much said, well, we broke up, you're out of here, right? So she literally was staying on friends' couches and everything else and uh, wasn't a good way of um, being able to bring um, her son over for visitations. So I said, you know what? It's not the best best place, but I have an empty basement. We can set up your room down there, right? It'll be all yours. The only time I'll ever come down there is if I go through to go do laundry. And I'll knock on the on the basement door and ask you if it's decent, you know, if it's whatever, and to be able to come through. And so, yeah, so we did that. Michael was 30 years older than Jessica. And he admits at first, despite their age difference, he had a bit of a crush on her. But over time, he said, it turned into more of a father-daughter relationship. She confided in him about the relationship struggles with Kevin, because even though they had broken up and had custody issues, they were still talking and seeing each other. She told me she, she's playing it out. She's being nice, nice to him and stuff like that, you know. And uh, you know uh, when he, you know, come by, you know, be nice to him, give him hugs, you know. And uh, you know, a couple of times he, he gave her a kiss and she kissed him back, type of thing. Michael also vouched for Jessica and told me she didn't have a drinking problem. Yeah, I mean, she'd have the occasional drink, you know, stuff like that. And uh, if she was a little upset, she might have more than one or two drinks. But um, you know, I never saw her drunk. It was clear to Michael, Jessica's focus was on her son. A little, little boy like that, two and a half, you know, needed his, needs his mom. Jessica was also going to the gym, working, and trying to save money. She was also seeing someone new, Ryan Chamberlain. I really liked Ryan. Ryan has a 
a nice boy the same age, and he knows how to parent. Ryan and Jessica dated on and off when she was younger. But in 2015, after she finally broke up with Kevin, they rekindled their old flame. She was kind, sweet. She would give the shirt off her back, go out of her way to help anybody. Just a bubbly soul. Great person to be around. A very addictive smile. Ryan and Jessica had a lot in common, including learning to co-parent with their exes. That's another thing why we got along so well the second time is we were both going through custody and we both had somebody to talk to and confide in and get suggestions from. At that point in time, my partying stages were done, so we were just hanging out at home with the kids and watching movies and all that. Jessica was trying to get custody of her son back and had a very important court date coming up. Rhonda told me Jessica wanted to wear the perfect outfit for court. Because her family lived in BC, when she went to the mall, she had her mom and grandmother on FaceTime to help her. Me and my mom, because she she wanted to buy these really high heel shoes. <laughs> my mom was yelling really loud, no. <laughs> she looked funny walking through the mall with us, especially with my mom, because my mom shouted everything through there. Was she stressed leading up to this court date? Yes. Yes. She just had so much riding on it. You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Loey Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? Wade through the weirdest stories on the web and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify. Since Ryan and Jessica were both juggling parenting and work, it meant dates and hangouts were generally reserved for the weekend. We went to dinner. Usually every Sunday or Saturday we'd hang out and she'd spend the night and I'd drive her home Monday morning on my way to work. March 10th, 2015 was one of those typical Mondays. Ryan dropped Jessica off on his way to work. I love yous and have a good day and text during the day and that was about it. Ryan admits he was a bit distracted. He was about to take a very big step forward in their relationship. I was building up the courage to ask her to move in. Jessica was also a bit preoccupied. Her court date was the next day, and she was hopeful she'd finally get 50-50 custody of her son. That night, Jessica worked a late shift at the Water Grill. She was running a bit behind schedule and caught a ride to work with her roommate, Michael. Yeah, I actually actually drove her to work. 
right? Because uh, it, was, it was my day off, so I actually drove her to work and stuff like that. It got her to work at one minute to four. <laughs> Michael said he expected to hear her come home around 10 p.m. As the hours passed and there was no sign of Jessica, Michael said he didn't immediately worry. I thought she was going to come home from work. I figured she might have stayed home that night because because of the court thing next morning, right? But Jessica never came home at all that night. He knew Tuesday, March 11th was a big day. So Michael texted Jessica to let her know he was thinking of her as she went to court. Yeah, good good luck in the morning. And then um, uh, that, af- that afternoon after work, I text her um, on my home from work. So are we still going uh, to the gym? No response. All of Jessica's friends waited anxiously to hear about how the court date went. But nothing. Then, another day went by. Uh, well, I got a little concerned Wednesday when she, when she never responded to me, right? And I'm going, well, maybe something happened in court and she just wants to be by herself, so she maybe went gone to her friend's place. Then, another day passed. None of Jessica's family or friends had heard from her in four days. So I went Friday to her work and says, I'm here to see Jessica. And, his, and her boss goes, well, she has, she's not here. And she, hasn't, she wasn't here yesterday. Whoa. Now all of a sudden bells went off in my head. I'm going, okay, this is not like Jessica. She would have at least called her boss if she wasn't coming in. And, something like that. and she would have told somebody. Jessica's friends and family began to panic. Her stepfather, right, texted me on Facebook. Have you heard of Jessica? I, I haven't heard her in the last couple of days. In the same way with him, he texts her, or she texts him every day as well. When, when she first went missing, I was about, you know, 99% sure that she was fine. There's that 1% of me that, you know, something, you know, awful happened, right? That same night, Kevin showed up at Jessica's place while her roommate was at work. He uh, came by the house and um, he uh, went to came to drop off um, uh, their son, right? He said, well, Jessica wasn't there, so he couldn't drop him off. He basically left his telephone with my son and asked me to call him back, you know, to find out, okay, do you know where Jessica is, right? And um, so, yeah, so when I, when I was talking to him, I told him and says, uh, yeah, I was at her work today and I um, was talking to her boss, and her boss said um, she hasn't been at work the last two days. I asked him, he says, are you going to put a missing person's report in, right? Because you are, you know, technically um, her closest family member here, right? And stuff like that. And he says, no, he says, if she's, you know, having issues, uh, I'll wait until Monday, right? And he says, if she hasn't heard anything like that, then I'll, I'll go do that. In the meantime, since Jessica's family was in B.C., they asked Michael to call police on their behalf. Well, I called 911, explained the situation and stuff like that and uh, whatnot. And uh, so the lady at the other end, uh, you know, checked um, uh, the different places, the hospital, the morgues and everything else, if anybody came in and nothing. She said, okay, I'm going to send a couple of police officers by and stuff like that and go from there. And I printed off a picture off of my computer of the one that they ended up using uh, for the missing persons report. Actually, the, the very first night when the cops came by, they, they searched her room, right? Um, then the, that Sunday, they came by again with about four or five police officers to do a, a canvas, neighborhood canvas and stuff like that. It wasn't like Jessica to take off 
and she was always on her phone. So at the very least, her mom expected a text. I was hoping that he just jumped the gun and that she's just staying with friends. Like, I was just really hoping that. It's horrible. I joined um, some groups online for people that are missing their children. And there's people that have been missing their children for like 24 years. And I just really didn't want to be one of those people. Um, the pain that they feel, I like just couldn't imagine doing it for 24 years. Even though Jessica was still technically missing, evidence was beginning to point towards foul play. But we got, you know, the first month you spend with a missing persons detective. And we didn't get the full month before they switched us over to homicide. And that was kind of scary. I guess it became more real that they weren't looking for necessarily a live person. One homicide detective took a special note of the case. It was a Sunday night, and I'd been kind of paying attention to sort of the things that had been going on over the weekend, watching the news, as I often did on, on a Sunday. And I saw a, uh, a story come up in relation to a missing girl uh, by the name of Jessica Newman. And uh, there was not a lot of detail provided in the actual story, other than the fact that she had gone missing from a, a restaurant that she had worked at, um, and she hadn't been seen for several days. It, something didn't feel right about sort of the way the story was, was, uh, was put out, and I thought there might be something more to the fact that she was, she was gone. And so at that point in time, I actually reached out just to get a little bit more information. A short time later, homicide detective Dave Sweet officially took over the case. Detective Sweet has been with the Calgary Police Service for 22 years. You'll remember him from previous episodes of Crime Beat. He and I share a very similar attitude towards our work. For both of us, it's about the people we meet at the center of these cases. It is truly the reason why I do the work. I think that uh, there's huge impacts that we can have with, um, with people in this particular area of work. And everybody always focuses on the sort of the negative side of, of, the, of the work. And we always think first about the crime scene and sort of the horrors that are behind some of those images. But uh, for me, um, the staying power has always been in relation to the uh, relationships I've been able to build with families. Uh, and friends of, uh, of our victims. Police retraced Jessica's steps, every interaction she had leading up to her disappearance. It turned out that Monday night, Jessica met up with someone after work. On March 10th at about 9 p.m., her employer uh, watched Jessica leave the bar and grill uh, and get into a vehicle in a parking lot and then leave for the night. We then learned that uh, the person that she had been picked up from was her ex-boyfriend and father of their young son. 
For some reason, Kevin Rublitz withheld that information from Michael Hahn, Jessica's roommate, when they spoke. But Detective Sweet said Kevin seemed forthcoming with him. They had just gone for coffee to discuss the upcoming uh, court proceeding the next morning. Um, no indications that there was any kind of issues or concerns. Um, it sounded like the relationship was quite amicable and there was some agreements that were being made in relation to how much access Jessica was going to have with their son and uh, how much access he was going to have. We know uh, from Kevin that uh, according to him, he had dropped Jessica off uh, back at her residence at about 10 p.m. on March 10th. And uh, he didn't watch her to the door, but he dropped her right in front of the residence. If that was true, police now needed to go back and verify Michael Hahn's story. You might remember that he said he hadn't seen Jessica at all that night. Obviously, um, the roommate that... uh, Jessica was living with was somebody that we certainly needed to speak to. He was also the complainant that reported her missing. And so um, he's asked a series of questions as well in relation to when the last time he had seen Jessica. And according to him, the last time he had seen her was on the night of March 10th when he had dropped her off at the restaurant. Did she ever make it back into her home? The roommate um, did not. Uh, admit to ever seeing her come in the door with a threshold to the door on the night she went missing. Police also needed to learn more about her missed court date. Her and uh, her ex-boyfriend were um, working towards uh, coming to some sort of access agreement for their son that they shared together and that she failed to attend that court hearing as well. Having 50-50 custody of her son was everything to Jessica. What could possibly have happened for her to skip that court appearance? According to family members and friends, Jessica was in a really good place in her life. She was uh, looking forward to the court date the following day. Um, She had actually uh, rearranged her work schedule to make sure she could accommodate the, the time. For her not to show up was unusual. Kevin told police he texted Jessica before he headed to court. When she didn't show up, he texted her several more times. He never got a response. A look at Jessica's bank and phone records painted an ominous picture. The stop date for everything, what we call footprints of life, seems to end uh, between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. on uh, March 10th of 2015. And so we were left with only one conclusion, and that was that something nefarious had happened to her and that she had died as a result of homicide. It was hard for Jessica's loved ones to believe she had been murdered. Dave Sweet called me. Every time somebody would be found, I would get a call. And then Dave Sweet would go out to wherever this person was. And then he would call me back and tell me if it's her or not. Jessica's mom was constantly on edge, worried what police would find or not find. 
and as time passed, she feared her daughter's case would go cold. I just wanted to make sure that they were doing something every day. Um, so he would just tell me how many men were out that day and, you know, what strategies they were using. Uh, I just didn't want it to go on so long that, that they would forget to look. A day shy of the eight-week mark of Jessica's disappearance, there was a break in the case. Workers with a paving crew discovered the body late Monday afternoon. She was found in the ditch just off of this rural road. Police are now searching this entire area for evidence. The search for further forensics continues with officers doing an exhaustive grid search near Balzac. I got a phone call uh, from the RCMP saying that they had found a female on the outskirts of the city near the Balzac Mall uh, in a ditch. And she had blonde hair and a distinguishable tattoo up her spine, which was consistent with the tattoo of Jessica. And I knew right then and there that uh, she had been located. As plans were made for an autopsy, Detective Sweet notified Jessica's mom. Uh, he just called me and said that um, they found another body. He's pretty sure it's Jessica's. And he's on his way out to confirm and that there would be somebody, somebody by to tell me if, if it is. And he said he was going to call me back, and he never did. But uh, within 45 minutes or so, a police car pulled up in my driveway and with victim services, and then I knew it was her. So I was already crying before I opened the door, and um, yeah, just let them in. Now that Jessica's body had been found, the questions focused on who would do this and why. Oh, a million different theories. None of them good. And uh, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing to start wondering who, who could kill your daughter and how they might do it. This wasn't a straightforward case for police. In fact, it's what they call a classic whodunit, a case with multiple suspects. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. So in this particular investigation, through our initial inquiries, we identified 14 people or events of interest to us, things that we want to examine further. We learned two or three days prior to Jessica going missing that another female living within the area uh, that Jessica lived had been knocked off of a bicycle by uh, a male in a truck. And there had been an attempted abduction on that female. She was able to 
uh, sort of thwart off her attacker and escape and then report that incident to police. So that is an example of an event of interest that we look at and we go, uh, somebody was almost abducted off of a street corner nearby Jessica's home. Could that person be also the person responsible for her disappearance that night? Detective Sweet said it was clear this was not going to be an easy or quick investigation. And so what was really important to us was, again, now through an investigative process and uh, is going through all of those uh, people of interest and establishing alibi, reviewing their statements, corroborating their statements to facts um, in some cases, we carried out forensic examinations. For example, at Jessica's home, the home that she shared with the roommate, we carried out a forensic examination of that location, we conducted forensic searches, looking for blood and DNA, evidence of crime scenes. We also did that uh, at another residence involving a uh, her, her most recent boyfriend. We made inquiries there as well. Same kind of thing, subject to uh, interviews and then examination of their residence for forensics and things of that nature. Early on, the Crown Prosecutor got involved in the case. Probably within, I want to say, even before Dave Sweet officially took over, I was already giving advice on the missing person aspect of it because it was starting to look more and more like uh, Jessica was going to be a victim of homicide. That's veteran Crown Shane Parker. He's been a prosecutor in Alberta since 2006. And before that, he was a criminal defense lawyer for three years in Nova Scotia. He's prosecuted some of the most high-profile cases I've ever covered, including homicide cases where no bodies were recovered, like the case of Ryan Lane. I shared his story in season one of Crime Beat. Parker is extremely skilled at painting a compelling picture in court that makes a case easy to follow if you're a juror or a reporter. Her killing came at a time where, as a 24-year-old, she wasn't given that extra time to fully come to uh, rebuilding her life and really having a life of her own as a 24-year-old. Uh, so, you know, the party phase had ended and she was now going on a, on a phase that for all intents and purposes looked like she was, she was going to be a, a real solid adult and, and want to have time with her children. Her redemption was, was interrupted by uh, the savage uh, killing. She was dumped in a ditch outside the city limits near a major shopping mall north of Calgary. Parker said the discovery of Jessica's remains provided valuable evidence. This was uh, an overkill, which again starts to look at who emotionally would be so involved in this that they would go those extreme lengths to cause and want to cause someone's death. Someone must have been very upset to have done what they did. The problem was there were several suspects that could fit that description. First, there was Jessica's roommate, Michael Hahn. By then, Michael was well aware he was being looked at, and he said he was more than happy to cooperate. 
Well, I guess if, if you look at all the um, uh, uh, movies and TV shows about crime, it's always, uh, you know, the people closest to them first that they, that they suspect, you know? So I'm going, well, she was living with me. So obviously, you know, I'm gonna be, uh, you know, one of the uh, top suspects. I got nothing to hide. I'm an open book, you know, I mean, look at all the things I've done. You know, you search my house, you know, how many, four or five times. You've checked my computer, you've checked my, my cell phone, you checked my car. And I'm going, I think, does my car have GPS? If it does, I'm going, you can look at my GPS, you know, profile. And the cop goes, uh, yeah, but unfortunately your GPS doesn't hold the information very long. One of the motives we considered, something we considered was if the roommate maybe had a um, romantic interest in Jessica. And it wasn't returned or something. And it wasn't returned, exactly. I mean, one thing we can do is we can use, look at computer usage. In this particular case, it was actually the roommate that consented to us, allowed, that allowed us to go onto the computer and look. But again, Michael wasn't the only person police were looking at. At the same time, police also looked at Jessica's boyfriend, Ryan Chamberlain. I never thought I'd be involved in a murder investigation. I was interrogated and all that, asked for stuff, and nothing to hide, nothing to worry about. They came to my house, they searched my house, they wanted computers. Have at her. It wasn't stressful, it wasn't inconvenience, it had to be done. But there was an added twist. Detectives got an anonymous letter, apparently written on my behalf, confessing as to what happened. Hence why they wanted to look at my computers. I think they were printed. I was never shown them. That's something you would see on a TV show. But at the same time, I didn't do it, so I don't care. As the investigation continued, some new suspects were added to the list, while others were crossed off. That process of clearing doesn't happen in three or four days, and it's not just, well, we'll work on this guy first and then we'll move on to the next guy and then on to the next guy. It's a, sort of an ongoing process uh, for everybody that's involved. Jessica's ex-boyfriend, Kevin Rublitz, was also looked at. It seemed he was the last known person to see Jessica alive. Police said Kevin was cooperative. He even allowed police to search his van. The very first day the police went and spoke to Kevin, Kevin consented to a search of that vehicle, the van. But investigators said there was something that stood out about Kevin Rublitz. Uh, Kevin's story keeps changing. Uh, in this particular case, talking to Kevin from that first day, second day and third day, uh, we just noticed there were small changes in the story to potentially account for evidence that we may collect into the future. Police said each time they spoke to Rublitz, he gave a slightly different version of events, all within just days of Jessica's disappearance. He told a story that didn't make a lot of sense to us. He told us that he dropped her off at the residence, that she gave him a kiss on the cheek, and that kiss on the cheek um, stirred up a lot of emotions uh, in him, and he decided to go for a long drive. And then Detective Sweet said there was an issue with his cell phone. 
Kevin had a, uh, made an offer to give us his cell phone so that we could analyze his cell phone. But I'd asked that he hold on to the phone for a couple more days as it was a work phone and he would return it to us on a, I think it was a Sunday. And he contacted the investigators on Sunday and said he had lost it at a house party the day before. And so he no longer had the cell phone. Police continued to look into each person of interest, examining all evidence and clues as they tried to figure out who was responsible for Jessica's murder. Detective Sweet said, after a thorough investigation, Ryan Chamberlain was cleared of any involvement in Jessica's death. I should note, the real author of those letters claiming Ryan was responsible has never been identified to this day. Prosecutor Shane Parker said Michael Hahn was also cleared. Police also looked at his uh, computers to see where he was, what he was doing online. Uh, so we were able to, to really clear Michael Hahn from an investigative standpoint based on his electronic footprint to really essentially give him an alibi there. The other thing is from a vehicle standpoint, uh, Hahn, uh, Michael was very cooperative. He gave a DNA sample, and he also consented to the police searching his vehicle. In the meantime, Jessica's family was finally able to grieve their loss. A memorial was held, and several of her loved ones read tributes, including Michael and Ryan. It seriously messed me up. I think about her every day, and there's always the what-ifs and what could have, and eats you away. You can't help but think about it. I'm a firm believer you have one person, there's one person out there for everyone. Just doesn't take into consideration this. Weeks after that, with flowers in hand and pain in their hearts, Jessica's family and friends went out to the rural site where the paving crew found her body. I met them along the remote road. It was an extremely emotional day. Someone had created a makeshift memorial in Jessica's honor, and it was the first time many of her loved ones had been there, including her aunt, Linda Abel. We live with it every day, and I know she's got three children, but there's many families, a lot of people that care about her, and they just need to know. It's hard to go on just thinking that we'll never find out. That same day, I was the first to report who police were narrowing in on as a suspect. Then, just two days later... Kevin Rublitz was arrested. With his hands cuffed behind his back, Detective Dave Sweet escorted him into custody. Global News first reported this week, police were closing in on a person of interest. And tonight, that suspect is in police custody. Global's Nancy Hickst is in the newsroom with more. Nancy? 
Family members confirm Jessica's ex-boyfriend is in police custody. The family was notified that her ex, the father of her youngest son, Kevin Rublitz, was arrested for her murder this morning. He has been with the homicide detectives most of the day, being questioned for this crime. Rublitz has declined interview requests with Global News on the advice of his lawyer. Rublitz was charged with the second-degree murder of Jessica Newman. It was alleged that he intended to kill Jessica, but not that it was planned or premeditated. Rublitz stood trial in November of 2017, two and a half years after Jessica disappeared. The jury heard the two were in a custody dispute, and the day after her disappearance, there was an important court hearing. The prosecution's theory is this was a crime of passion, a spontaneous but intentional murder. Details of the case are hard to hear, but her family wants answers. It's always there looming over you. It's really important to us to know what happened. Um, somebody's got to be there for Jess. And uh, as a family, we feel like we've got to stick it out for her, be her voice. Those are Rhonda's cousins, Linda Abel and Lisa Shaw. But Jessica always called them her aunts. They attended every day of the trial and updated Jessica's mother as she watched the case unfold from her home in BC. They, along with the jurors, heard grisly details of Jessica's death. Here's prosecutor Shane Parker. Murder is murder in terms of the intent. There has to be an intent to kill, and we certainly had that level of intent with just looking at Jessica's body for the 75 stab wounds. Someone really, really wanted Jessica to die that night. Uh, and as I say, it was an emotional killing. Jessica was stabbed 75 times. The medical examiner gave graphic details of her death. Parker said the placement of the stab wounds painted a brutal picture, one she could never have survived. The way Jessica was dressed and not dressed was really important as well. Jessica was wearing a, a, a sleeveless dress and also would have been wearing uh, like a zip-up hoodie over top. And again, we're talking about uh, March in s southern Alberta, so it's cool. But her dress was down uh, to her waist, so her breasts were exposed. But there were no cut marks in the dress. Come back to that in a moment. There was also no blood on her shoes or very little, which would indicate she was probably sitting down when she was killed. Again, that gravitational force of the blood. But the hoodie was really the only way that the forensic pathologist, Dr. Adiabo, could give an indication, a more accurate indication, how many times she would have been stabbed. What we can infer from that is, when she was killed, her dress was pulled down, panties were in place, but she would have had the zip-on hoodie on at least her shoulder area. Well, part of the theory was that by Jessica going to such a remote location after work, they were confirming details for March 11th that consistent with some of the other electronic messages we had between Rublet and Jessica, that this was gonna be a bit of a, a lover's lane makeout session. And once that occurred, somewhere in there, that's when the murder occurred because they were partly undressed but the uh, hoodie on, but in an unzipped fashion, which is the way she was found. Also found with her purse, which also had money and other uh, items of value in it, 
So the only thing that was taken was Jessica's engagement ring, which again was the center of some of those electronic communications earlier. Uh, it also starts to put together who might be responsible for her death, that she would go to a scene that is starting to look more like a consent sexual act taking place. And of course, where she was, where, where it wasn't a robbery. There was no bindings on her body. Her panties were in place. So you're starting to go away from sexual assault and you're now starting to look at, given the number of wounds, you're now looking at more intimate partner violence. Jurors heard, while Rublitz and Jessica were broken up and both seeing other people, they were still somewhat romantically involved. They were in a, a relationship where they were still secretly together in that he'd given back an engagement ring and even referred to her in January as his fiance. In other words, they were coming back together again, but haven't, hadn't moved back in together. And they really hadn't told many people that they were an item once again. They had been in a relationship, it broke off, and now they were coming back together again. Common element being the child that they shared. But he's dating other women and she's seeing other men. In Valentine's Day, there's some text messages we were able to recover from Jessica's upload from her computer. And there's some jealousy around uh, Valentine's Day. So that's about a month before she goes missing. Rublitz told police they were seeing each other regularly. He said they were still in love. Uh, <clears throat> how often did you meet and see Jessica since you separated in August until the day she disappeared? Uh, just near the end of October, we started seeing each other every Tuesday and Thursday. Okay. Uh, night for a couple hours, just having a coffee. Uh, a few nights we rented a hotel, spent the night together. Do you love her? Jess? Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. Very dearly. <laughs> Jessica's friends and family still don't believe she was really planning to get back together with Rublitz. Jessica's family believes she was just playing along for the sake of her child. She wanted 50-50 custody and she needed Rublitz to be on board especially given his allegations that she had a drinking problem. The prosecution outlined the complicated relationship for the jury. He had full custody of the child, and Jessica only had visitation. There was allegations that Jessica uh, suffered from alcoholism, had some other issues. Though when you drill down, I'm not sure really there, that was ever an extent. It was probably more of a family law kind of allegation that she was a bad mother. She did have a certificate for, or a check-in sheet for AA that we found, but there was no alcohol bottles, for instance, in her, in her really sparse basement. But there was no beer bottles or anything like that, no alcohol bottles. And she worked at a, a bar um, that was more like a family restaurant than a, a bar bar. And again, um, no indications that she was drinking at work or anything like that. And for her patterns to be regular and that she was gone back to the gym, uh, she was working out, she's working regularly, she's not missing shifts. Usually you start to see patterns where if someone is abusing alcohol, they're having trouble keeping, tr being able to keep track of those sorts of things and appearances. And she was going to family court. Behind the scenes electronically, 
Rublitz, while sometimes bashing her parenting skills to others, was agreeing to a 50-50 split of time with the child as time was coming up. So going back with Ryan, her time with Ryan, they didn't want to upset Rublitz, who seemed to be agreeing that he was going to consent to a 50-50 split of time for Jessica with her child. Jurors heard about the court date Jessica was looking forward to March 11, 2015. They were shown a text exchange that took place between Rublitz and Jessica March 4, 2015, one week before the scheduled court date. Jessica wrote, Court is on the 11, right? Rublitz responded, Yep. Jessica, we gonna go down together like, like last time? Rublitz, LOL, yeah, sure. Jessica, you're still giving me 50-50, even though you're still at your sister's, right? Rublitz, yepers. Jessica, okay, just making sure. She ended it with a smiley face. According to what Jessica was understanding, that was going to be the day where Rublitz was going to consent to a 50-50 split for her to have access to her child again. So she was really excited. She was really excited. This was a pivotal one. Uh, that really all events had been leading up to for months of getting this here. Here's what Rublitz told police. I know, I know she wouldn't jeopardize coming to court because if I wasn't there to give her the 50-50, she wouldn't have got it. Yeah. Because I had to agree to it. So. And even my lawyer was against giving it to her under circumstances, but I had seen a lot of improvement with her. Okay. She'd slipped up a few times, but... So that's an indica- that's a big indicator that she didn't turn off the court on that Wednesday, in your opinion. Mm-hmm. Jurors also heard how Rublitz changed his story several times in the days and weeks after her disappearance. His story is, in version one, he comes back and drops her off uh, at her uh, townhouse, where Michael Hahn lived. He sees her get out, takes a few steps, and then he drives away. Version one. Version two... He says, well, she gave me a peck on the cheek, and then I went to drive out to Balzac to clear my head, which extends the time because the time of uh, when he gets home needs to be accounted for. Here are some excerpts of the interview Rublitz gave to police. So when was the last time you had any form of contact with Jessica? It would be the Tuesday night when I dropped her off. The kiss and the hug you did not see her go into that house? No. So last night you dropped it on us that you went for a 45-minute drive. Driving clears my head. Um, it's still common? a lot of, Yeah, I do it all the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, why didn't you tell us about that that first? It didn't even dawn on me. Okay. The prosecution told jurors only the killer would have known that location. He injects Balzac into the into the narrative before months before Jessica would have been found. Um, so he was a pretty good. Uh, it was a slip, I think, was the way I put it to the jury. So twice during the investigation, uh, Rublitz injects Balzac cross iron mills, which is the area where Jessica ultimately would be found. As I say, it's a slip because he knew how she died, and she knew he knew where she died before the police had even found her. So those are slips because he had knowledge that only the killer would have known. And he ultimately was proved right. He did know where she died because 
he was the one who did it. Rublitz's story was inconsistent. So was the story provided by his sister. Uh, the timeline for when he gets home changed a little bit during the trial. His sister initially told police he gets home at um, sometime around 11.30, I can't remember, 11.20 or 11.40 now. She changes it. Uh, months later, she tells police, oh, I, I made a mistake. It was actually 10.15 that he came home. Uh, 10, 20 that he comes home. That still didn't buy him enough time. It still allowed him enough time to, you've got between 9 o'clock and now 10, 15, still leaves a fair bit of time to get out there and come back. And then there was the van, which may have been seen as the most damning evidence of all. You'll recall Rublitz consented to have his van searched in the days after Jessica was missing. The investigators that were there and did the search of that vehicle did what I would consider to be a cursory search of the car. But they they saw nothing inside the van that caused them major significant alarm in terms of they noticed the vehicle to be dirty, a number of tools and things like that inside the car, but they didn't see anything specifically obvious towards it being involved in a murder. But after Jessica was found, police needed to do a more formal search of that van. The problem was, it was gone. The van had been sold. Jessica's found May 4th. May 5th, the van goes to the wreck yard. And then once you find the van at the wrecking yard, it's got distinctive gouge marks in both the passenger and driver's seat by where the seatbelts attach and how that van just all of a sudden goes to the wrecking yard one day after she's found and the news breaks on Global that, you know, there's the overhead shots of the helicopter going around uh, and that a body was found. Fortunately, police were able to track the vehicle down and a full forensic examination was done. They knew there had to be something in that vehicle that made it significant. So they literally took the vehicle apart. They took the seats out. They took the fabric off the chair, off the chairs. They did the analysis underneath, but as I say, from the fabric to the wicking of the foam. Uh, they took the carpet out. So it was it was literally stripped clean by the police to do their analysis at the end of the day. That was a key key break for us because the other thing is Jessica's blood was found in the bolting mechanism to the passenger seat. And it was really that blood and, you know, think for yourself, how much fluid must have been there for it to seep through a bolting mechanism that attaches that chair to the, to the floorboards of the, of the vehicle. You might wonder how police didn't catch that evidence during the first search of the van. First, you have to remember that this vehicle was not brand new. It was a bit of a beater. Second, a more in-depth search revealed the van had been cleaned pretty thoroughly. Shane Parker called it a botched cleanup because while the evidence wasn't easy to spot with the naked eye, experts in forensic testing easily found the blood. But until they actually took the seat covers off and put it under the, uh, uh, the LCV chemical enhancement, then you could see that the top of the covers looked clean. But underneath, when you pull them away from the foam, 
Then you could see where the bodily material, the blood from Jessica, had actually wicked underneath and wasn't captured by any kind of a cleaning. Police confirmed it was Jessica's blood. Her DNA was found in the van. The only real question left was why. Why was Jessica killed? And that will always be the mystery as to what was the triggering moment that would have caused Kevin Rublets to do a frenzied uh, attack, an emotional killing upon uh, his ex-partner and the mother of his child. We don't know what the actual triggering words are because we don't know. This was a circumstantial case, and a circumstantial case being we never got a confession from Kevin Rublets. Uh, it wasn't like he told someone what he had done or he told the police what he did, which by nature most homicides are circumstantial cases. And this was a circumstantial case, which means you can only go so far and there's going to be naturally some moments where you go, the why. And for most family members, they want to know the why. And most times I can't tell them the why because that's where the inferences usually don't go. Uh, we don't have enough information to fill in or to, to speculate what it might be. We know at one point in time, it was friendly. There didn't seem to be, she willingly was going with Rublets that night after work. Something turned bad in that car ride or at that stop up in Balzac. And uh, that's when she, she met her maker. Rublets, however, maintained his innocence. His defense told jurors there were other possible killers. They tried to inject uh, a third-party suspect into it, and that being uh, Rublis' mother, who also supposedly uh, didn't like Jessica, and they left open the possibility, well, she may have had access to, to the van as well. Um, that was argued by defense. I don't think their heart was really in that argument because I think they knew it had some, it had some holes or uh, some problems with it. I should note Rublitz's mother, didn't attend the trial. It took jurors just eight hours to reach a verdict in the case. Kevin Rublitz was found guilty of the second-degree murder of Jessica Newman. Several months later, a sentencing hearing was held. Jessica's mother made the long drive from BC to Calgary to face her daughter's killer. I looked at him a lot. Um, yeah, I don't think that there's any remorse there. And I think that he should apologize. And until he apologized, there should be no, no parole. In Rhonda Stewart's victim impact statement, she said she told her daughter she didn't trust Rublets. Rhonda said she's haunted by the thought Jessica could possibly be alive if she had been more persistent. She said she hates that Rublets knew where Jessica was the entire time and chose not to tell anyone. The actual finding out how she died, um, I struggle with knowing the, not knowing how much pain she was in and for how long she was in pain before she died. Um, I struggle with the fact that she just lay there um, by herself. I don't know how long she was alive for there, if at all. 
According to a pre-sentence report entered as an exhibit in court, Rublitz came from a split home. And over the years, his mother had several relationships. He described his childhood as normal. He rode dirt bikes and tinkered on cars with his stepdad. Rublitz was previously married, but only had one child, and that was the son he shared with Jessica. He had no previous criminal record. At the time of the sentencing hearing, three years after he killed Jessica, Rublitz told his probation officer he was engaged to be married and said his family continues to support him. Convicted of second-degree murder, Rublitz faced an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for a minimum of 10 years. A Calgary man who murdered the mother of his child has been sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 17 years. But as Nancy Hicks reports, the ruling is not much comfort for the victim's grieving loved ones. Kevin Rublitz will be 50 years old before he's eligible for parole. The deception lies after the fact really uh, were a factor, but blended into just the, the 75 stab was the sheer gratuitous violence and uh, really that poor Jessica was left uh, in a ditch for two months. But the court process didn't end there. Rublitz appealed his conviction. That was heard on Valentine's Day 2020. Rublitz's defense argued to the Court of Appeal that the trial judge erred in not allowing Rublitz to put to the jury the possibility that Jessica's roommate or his son or the writer of those anonymous letters could have been the killer. But Alberta's top court rejected those arguments and dismissed the appeal. His conviction for second-degree murder stands. You've heard the term closure. Yeah, that, that never is going to come from the court process. You are not going to get closure from a court decision. We're going to seek justice uh, for the community, for society, to hold person accountable uh, for, uh, for what occurred. Uh, but we're not going to be able to give you emotional uh, closure for an event. That's going to have to come either from your pastor, from your psychologist, from your family, from your friends, and obviously a, a great deal internally to come to grips emotionally with how this is going to impact you for the rest of your life. But the court process will not be giving you closure. Years later, the truth about what happened to Jessica is still hard for her loved ones to comprehend. Her mom thinks about what she'd say to Rublitz if she'd ever have the chance. Like, I would want to hurt him as much as he hurt me, but there's no words to do that. I don't think I could say anything that would make him feel as bad as I think he needs to feel. He doesn't care. He doesn't... He probably sleeps fine every night. I don't. She was my only daughter, and I have a house full of boys that miss their sister. Um, we miss her cooking. <laughs> we miss her when we're out shopping. I always see something that would look so cute on her or, yeah, we run into her friends all the time. Um, I think about her friends all the time and they're out having babies and going to the park with their kids and just doing all the stuff that she should be doing. 
there is the big things, right? She, you know, she's not gonna get to be any of her dreams. There are now three young boys without their mother. Uh, her oldest is just now starting to ask a lot of questions. So now we're taking him to a counselor so that he can try and sort that out with somebody knowledgeable um, in how to tell kids that without adding any more trauma than he's already had. Rhonda said, it's hard to talk about Jessica with the kids. Um, we do sometimes, but I let the kids more or less lead the conversation. It's just the, it's the little things, you know, that the kids do and they're excited. And the, they're excited to show me and it's, it's like, you know, you should, you should be showing your mom, you know, your mom's missing out on these little moments. Jessica's youngest son was just two and a half years old when she was murdered. He's now in elementary. He's found a really great living situation and he's doing well in school. He had a teddy bear with Jessica's voice recorded on it so he could feel like she was close even when she wasn't. Jessica's family has saved that audio. So her little boy will always be able to hear his mom's voice when he needs her. Night-night, pumpkin. I love you. See you in a few days. Thank you for joining me this week and listening to Jessica's story. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.